Hello and welcome back. My name is Kaylin Ham, and you're listening to From the Valley, a podcast about Christ, community, and cultivating our lives. Today, we're going to be talking about why young people are leaving the church. Are our churches dying? And what can we do about it as the church, but especially if you're a parent? So without further ado, I'd like to introduce to you our special guest for the day, Riley Newton. Well, welcome, Riley. Thanks for thanks for coming in to chat with me. No, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, so. I'm excited to have you. This is episode four, so you know the bar has been set. You just have to keep the standard now for us. Okay, I'll try my best. Yeah. <laughs> so, can you share a little bit? Who are you? Why are you here? And what do you do? Uh, particularly for Sturgeon Valley Baptist Church. Sure. I uh, My name is Riley Newton. I am the Creative Arts Ministries Director here at Sturgeon Valley Baptist Church. I handle all of the back-end stuff, so all of our streaming, all of the sound, um, anything that goes on technologically, uh, I'm kind of the guy to handle that in most of the ministries here at Sturgeon. I also lead worship here at Sturgeon once a month. And I love playing music and singing. And so that's kind of what I'm doing here. Very cool. I'm very thankful to have you, by the oh, way. Thank you, Kaylin. <laughs> I'm, very th- I'm very thankful to have you. <laughs> don't have to try and do all those things yes. that I know nothing about. Yes. How long have you been working here? Well, technically, I started working here in 2017 as an intern while I was doing my degree, um, my Bachelor's of Theology at Vanguard. So I did that from 2015 to 2019. And while I was there, during my years, I required—I was required to do an internship uh, at my local church where I was currently attending. And so I applied at Sturgeon here to uh, do my internship, and I was accepted. So I was under Pastor Tom and Pastor Serge. Mostly I did visitation, uh, pastoral care, a lot of that, and especially during the summer. And then I also helped out doing... Um, when you were not there, I think you were there in 2018 when you were the summer worker, uh, I was also helping out doing the summer worker with a little bit of stuff with Peter and then a little bit with Holly too. So that's what I was doing, how I got started here. Yeah, so it's been five years now approximately since I've been here in some degree. And then I moved into re- reception uh, when Gaylene moved to being our church secretary. And then when Sean departed, you and I were brought on. So yeah, it's been five years just progressively changing and doing other things. That's pretty crazy to think about. Yeah. I have five years for you here. Yeah, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like it's been two or something, and it's just been a short haul, but hard to believe that, you know, I've been here for quite a while now. So So did you grow up thinking, oh, I'm going to be in ministry? Was that in the plan ever for you? Uh, That's a great question. No, because I didn't (laughs) grow up in the church. I I grew up in a non-believing household, um, there's there's no antagonism towards the church in my home. I, I know that I hear that a lot, that there can be, you grow up in an antagonistic towards the church home, but I, I didn't. My parents are just apathetic towards faith. My dad grew up Catholic. He was confirmed, uh, which means it's kind of like um, how we in the Baptist church have child dedication. My dad was baptized and he was also confirmed when he was 13. So he was given a Bible and he attended church, and but it just didn't resonate with him. He, once he was done high school, he left the church. 
Uh, my mom grew up in a household that was ambivalent towards faith. My grandmother uh, was, you know, a I would have said a quasi-Christian. She, like, said that she believed uh, that Jesus Christ was Lord, uh, but nothing in her life uh, until really the very end of her life uh, really showed that she, you know, had accepted faith. But uh, I grew up in this environment where it was like Jesus was there and he was that guy at Christmas. And so that's how I understood faith until I was 15 years old. Uh, and that's when Shannon Lusiak and I became friends in school because my parents had just divorced. Well, they were in a separation state and then eventually divorcing. And so in when I began grade 10, uh, I actually started uh, going to two different houses, my mom's house in, in Heritage Lakes here in the city and my dad's house in Deer Ridge. And I would split my time each week. So one week I'd be there at my mom's, one week I'd be at my dad's. And I took the bus, which means that Shannon, who also lived in, near my mom, and I took the same bus and uh, we both know Shannon's a uh, devout believer and uh, very convicted of her faith. And even at that point, she was very uh, involved in the church, involved in the, the youth group. And she began to invite me to uh, come to church. And we had so many arguments on the bus on the way to and from school. <laughs> we would constantly debate faith. And, um, and I would ridicule her faith. And she was very accommodating about it. She was very understanding. And then eventually, uh, my girlfriend at the time dumped me, and of course, uh, I was just heartbroken. I was so distraught. I didn't know what to do. Grade 10, Riley. Grade 10, yeah. Riley. I was broken. This was January of 2010. So Shannon invited me on a whim to come for the, invited me for the 50th time. Uh, but she invited me just randomly because it had been a while since she had offered to me but just that week she had invited me to come out and I said I have nothing to lose I can I'll, I guess I'll hang out with these Christian losers because oh, no. uh, I have nothing to lose and I showed up and I remember just being so welcomed in the church and I remember saying wow there's something really weird about these people like they're very friendly and uh, if you grew up in the public school system uh, one reality about it is that it is cold dispassionate and it doesn't care how you feel it's all about maintaining this, the status quo. So you never put your foot out, out of line, uh, which is I find what Christians do a lot is they put their foot out of the status quo. And I found that very weird. One of the first things was that Dallas uh, greeted me. And he said, hi, I'm Dallas. I'm one of the youth leaders here at Sturgeon. And I was like, why are you greeting me? Why are you saying hello? Like that was so foreign that somebody would even greet me. And then Chris Wolf was a leader at that point. He greeted me too. Shannon's older brother, Mike Lindsay, was a leader. And I just was blown away by how welcoming and friendly it was. Um, and of course, there were girls. So I was oh, like, oh, I was like, yes, yeah, the classic uh, flirt and convert. So it w I found multiple reasons to come back, uh, all of them which started to entice me to uh, just want back to spend time with these people. And that's what really got me. It wasn't God. I did not care about God. I did not care about Christianity or about Jesus. And I didn't really care about Justin's devotional. I remember the first time actually I was here, which was January 15th, we did uh, the Ultimate Spoons game. And I felt really awkward at the end because Justin was doing a devotional. And I was like, well, I can't leave. Because like, I just wanted to go. I'm like, I don't care about this d devotional part. But I was like, well, I guess I should just awkwardly stay 
and just listen to what he has to say. Because if I leave, I'll look weird because everybody else is staying. So I just sat there. And then I remember when he was praying, I was like, oh, I guess I should look down and close my eyes because everybody (laughs) else is. And it'll be weird if I just sit here and pretend or stare up in the sky. People would be like, what is that guy doing? Again, that whole status quo thing by the public school. I was like, well, I better just do what everybody else is doing to follow what they're, you know, to fit in and stuff. So, yeah, that was my my journey sort of to faith and 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 how i interpret uh yeah how i interpret coming to church and stuff like that yeah. so what was it that kind of moved you from i'm coming because i like these people and mm. there's cute girls to i'm a christian now that's a good question um it was a journey it was a it was a long journey and it took multiple years i don't think that Um, I have a certain point. I remember Pastor Tom telling me, I can't remember the exact date, but he says like December 7th, 1976. I remember my sister praying with me and he accepted the Lord. I don't have a a moment like that. But I remember at at Youthquake in 2010, um, uh, Matt Marr was there. And I remember I really liked his songs. And Justin um, was speaking to the whole youth group, but he was obviously speaking to me in retrospect. Uh, he said, if you don't know the, the, the Lord here today, I recommend, I, you know, I hope that you would pray that the Lord would reveal himself to you. And I had been coming to church. I'd come to church twice. So I'd come the first time for Ultimate Spoons. Then back then it was Vancouver 2010 Olympics. So we did a Vancouver 2010 event. And then it was YQ. So I'd, I'd met these people three times and the third time was me going on this bus nine hours out to the middle of nowhere in Saskatchewan. Um, and I just felt like, well, if I'm here, I might as well do what Justin's asking me to do. So I remember praying during one of the concerts that Matt Marr was leading, praying that God would reveal himself to me in some tangible way, that I would see something or that I would sense, you know, his presence or something would just, that something would happen rather than me just sitting there and nothing happening. And the moment I finished praying, a good friend of mine, Andreas, uh, just started bawling, just instantly broke out into tears uh, from just singing, and then he just started bawling. And if you know Andreas, um, it it would take a shot to his foot to get him to even (laughs) shed a single tear down the side of his face. So to see him crying, like I I don't think in the 10 years, 10 plus years I've known him, I've seen him cry. Uh, But this one, one time he was bawling. And then... The craziest part was that while I was sitting there, he turned to me and I didn't even look at him. Like I was like looking at him out of the corner of my eye so that he didn't feel awkward because I was like, oh no, he's crying. I can't look at him. This is so awkward. So I was staring forward and he turned to me and he like taps me and I'm like, oh no, I'm going to have to talk. And he's crying. crying. (laughs) What am I going to do? So I'm like, my whole body's cringing. I'm like, what am I going to do? So I turned to him and he goes, have you ever just cried? for no reason at all. And then he said, nothing else. And he turned back and continued to worship. And I thought to myself, that is weird. Like, that is really <laughs> weird. I got like the, the tingles because I was like, that is such a weird coincidence that I would pray. And the moment I finished praying and I said, God, just reveal, just show me something. This kid beside me just starts bawling and then, just turns to me and says, have you ever cried for no reason? And then just 
keeps staring ahead and like he never mentioned it he never said anything about it again he never mentioned it he never brought it up for years until i brought it up to him and i believe that like nothing changed for me at that time i didn't come home and say wow there is a god uh but i was like that is really weird and that was the moment where i believe god at least cracked my the uh, stony heart like he Mm. he just cracked it open just just enough to get me thinking and progressively over that year, in March, your sister, Brianna, invited me to come to the Wednesday night Bible study. And I was like, well, I'm already attending every f- Friday night. Um, and I really like these people. And I like spending time with them. And there's cute girls. So I checked around to see who, who would be there if there'd be cute girls there. And there were. So I was like, well, you know what? What do I have to lose to go to, to the Wednesday nights? Other than sitting there awkwardly because I don't know anything about scripture. I don't know anything about God other than Jesus is the guy who died on a big T on Christmas. Like I thought he died on Christmas. Like that's how like, that's how not like that's, that's how much I understood about him was that he was born on Christmas. And then for some reason I thought he died on Christmas too. And then Easter was just this like celebration of him dying on Christmas. Like that was my, that was my understanding. So when I started to come, it was amazing how much I, I, began to learn and just began to to get into that and internalize I'd say that's when God really got started to get to me because Justin will tell you too that's when I started to ask the questions Friday was a time of like fun and like you know hanging out with your friends and playing games but Wednesday nights was like the time where I would ask the really hard questions like the problem of evil and and all these things that I grown up bashing Christianity for, you know, actually having the opportunity to ask um, a teacher of Christianity, a, a guy who spent his days loving, uh, was a very weird dichotomy for me. It was like, oh, I can actually learn what these people b- believe rather than just like reading it on the internet, a cute Reddit post on our atheism, and then just being like, oh yeah, I'm so stupid. But then asking them and being like, oh, actually they do have an answer for that question and there and whether I like it or not that's another thing but I that's when it started to happen Sundays I started to attend in September so then Shannon kept telling me you should come on Sunday you should come on Sunday boom that's when it changed and I started to uh, come on Sundays in September of 2010 so then I was going to church three times a week but I wasn't a believer and I still didn't accept God until probably the next year, sometime in 2011, 2012, that's when I really began to be like, okay, I think I believe this thing. There's no certain event. There was no like, wow, this is the moment, like the Holy Spirit has come to me and is convicting me. I don't even remember being convicted. I don't remember praying the the sinner's prayer where you just repent of your sin. I don't even remember. What I remember is that there was a progressive period from 2011 to 2012 where I really began to like be like, this is what I believe. And then probably in 20, late 2013, early 2014 was when I was like, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. Like, I really wow. sincerely believe this. And it's not just something that I'm, you know, hanging out with my friends and I believe. Like, this is something that's actually, like, I feel called to, to this. I feel convicted by the Holy Spirit. I want to follow him. I want to become a believer. So it probably took four years for God to, to go from, like, I hate you and I don't want anything to do with you to I love you and I want to follow you with all my heart. That's really, really cool. I don't know if I've ever heard it kind of compacted like that, like your story. Like I kind of know your story because 
I was around we grew up for a lot together. of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but hearing that's very cool. Yeah. So did you end up with one of the cute youth group girls? Are you no. a bachelor? What's going on? Um, no. And uh, I think everybody in the situation would agree it's for the best. <laughs> uh, I opined after one particular girl for a long period of time. And uh, I think that God, it's funny, because not that God wanted me to do that. In fact, he was probably saying, this person isn't the right person for you, but you're just not listening to me. So what he did was, using this pining time, this two and a half, three years of time where I pined after this girl in the youth group, um, he used that to keep me here. And while I, while he kept me here, he was able to speak to me. So it's not like he was holding me in, in shackles at the mercy of, of this girl so that he could teach me. It was me being foolish and not listening to him and not hearing the signs and not listening to wise counsel. Uh, but because I didn't listen to wise counsel and because I continued down this path, I was actually able to learn the gospel. I was able to learn uh, what I truly believed. In the end, their relationship just totally failed. And uh, I, as I said, for the best for both of us. Um, and then I got over that and I was single for a year. And um, during that time, I met my wife, Candace, and she had begun coming to uh, college and careers. She just finished her master's at uh, Queens from Kingston. And she'd come here to actually start work in Alberta Health Services in Edmonton, because essentially in that system, you have to start here if you want to get down into Calgary. So she wanted to end up in Calgary and start working seriously down in Calgary. But in order to kind of get going in Calgary, she had to come here and get her feet wet in Alberta Health and then make her way down to Calgary to get like a good job down there where she wanted um, and Arden Melnick uh, actually was uh, one of her classmates in at Queens. And so when Candace came to Edmonton, she said, well, which church should I go to? And Arden said, well, my family, uh, my mom and I, we go to Sturgeon Valley in St. Albert, with this little suburb nor north of Edmonton. So Candace says, okay, I'll find a place in St. Albert and I'll start going to church there. And then she worked up in Westlock. So I, re I remember she started coming and Adam and Caitlin Schellenberg got connected with her and they became very good friends. And uh, because I was, I had just left high school at that point, that was 2013, beginning of 2014. And uh, so we became friends because actually I wanted to set her up with my friend because she's <laughs> older than I am. And I was 19, she was 24 at the time. So I thought, oh, this girl will be perfect for my friend because, you know, they're close to the same age and, and that didn't work out at all. So that's kind of how we became friends. And then we began dating. It was at, it was funny. It was just so practical, like comparatively to uh, my last relationships and stuff, like where it was all lovey dovey and it was like a short term thing. And then suddenly it was like, I like you. I like you too. Candace and I were so practical about it. It was like, we were best friends for like a year. And then I was like, I believe that I like you. And she said, I believe that I like you too. Shall we begin to date? And then we began to date. And yeah, we dated for 10 months. We got engaged. Then we were engaged for eight months. Then we got married. And here we are five years, six years later, this June, we have three kids. Wow. Yeah. So what a 
So neither of your plans really worked out. Nothing. But... <laughs> like almost none of my plans. Almost none of the plans I had. All in the best out. way possible. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> of course, in retrospect, you can see God's hand on all these things. Uh, but yeah, completely not how I had made my plans That's at all. That's really funny. Yeah. So none of this is actually what we're what you wanted to talk about. Very no. cool stories. <laughs> no. But kind of tying into well, you have three kids. Yeah. And you, since becoming a father, are very passionate about raising your kids in the church, you and Candace. Yes. And uh, you shared a devotional a little while ago at one of our staff meetings relating to that. And then you told me, well, this is what I want to talk about. Yeah. I want to talk about children growing up in the church and particularly leaving the church. So can you elaborate mm-hmm. a little bit on that? Yeah. Well, I remember... Um probably seven or eight years ago, we had a uh, church picnic and it was out in the back alley and we were getting hot dogs. And I was talking with Pastor Justin. This is b- before that Candace and I had begun to date. Um, and I remember talking about all of the kids who were in our youth group back in from 2010 to t- 2012, you know, grade 10, 11, 12. And just like the the amount of kids who would stay And I remember asking Justin about this because I'd heard, um, again, I wasn't like a full believer at that time. I didn't understand how the church worked or things like that. And I just wanted to know his thoughts on like, because my dad had left, you know, what, what's the, what's the retaining rate of the church for kids who leave the youth group? And he said, not good. Mm. And, uh, by not good, he elaborated and said that the Barna Institute, which was founded by a guy named George Barna, and it's, a, it's essentially it's a church statistics institute, and, and their goal is to just measure a bunch of church s- statistics, um, along with the, an, another, com- uh, I guess it's not a company, but it's a, an institute called the Pew, in- the Pew Research Institute, and they do the same thing, so they kind of team up, and he had just read that year, this was 2014, I think, that they had done a study in that like 60% of grade 12s who leave, like once they're done grade 12, don't come back in the church, like yeah. all across Christianity in North America. And that was a shock to me. At first, I was like, wow, that's way higher of a leave rate than I thought. At that time, I'd assumed, okay, maybe 20% will leave. Like one out of every five kids will go. But for him to say three out of every five kids will leave and not come back, that was a big shock. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I specifically remember where I was when we had this conversation like what the weather was like. It was like a real changing moment in my heart was when I learned about just how harsh uh, the reality of leaving the church was. And then as I got older, um, I knew that I wasn't going to leave because I was like, no, this is what I believe. Um, But I could see it in, in my friends. I could see people, especially children who grew up in the church, uh, leaving because their faith was not their own. And they obviously had lived on the coattails, many of them, I'm not going to say all, I don't know all their walks, but many of them had grew up on the coattails of the faith of their parents. And they had never made that transition. But the moment that they turned 18 and they were adults, they were kind of like, oh, I'm not a kid anymore. I don't have to follow everything that my parents say and do now. I'm literally an adult. I can move out. I can leave. I can go live my life. And their faith was obviously, you know, not really fleshed out even during their time at the youth group, I think. But it's like during the catalyst moment where they leave for 
university. Then they have to make the choice to come because that's the difference. When you're underneath your parents and you're a child of parents in the church, uh, you have to, you essentially, you just have to come to church because your parents are going to church. So you can't stay home alone. Mm-hmm. Even when you're like 12, it's just this routine that's been worked into your heart. It's like, I'm just going to come to church because my parents come to church. I'm going to do all the youth group stuff because my friends are there or because my parents tell me to go. I remember, I can't tell you how many kids I know. We're just told to go to the youth group. It's like, oh yeah. no, you, you have to go. Well, it's just was, a thing. That was me. Like I grew up in the church and there was yeah. no option. There was yeah. There were certainly weeks I would have preferred to stay home, but my mm. mom was like, nope, you're going, right? <laughs> there, was, there was no option for me. Right, yeah. And I think that's the experience of probably a lot of uh, young people in the church. And I think it comes from a good place in the parents' heart. Don't get me wrong. I don't think that the parents like mischievously scheming that they're going to force their kids to do something they don't want to do. I just think that parents believe, Christian parents believe that God is the most important thing in your life. So if it's the most important thing in their life and they're trying to pass on that value to you, they want to make sure that you understand its value. So they send you to a place each week mm-hmm. where you can be amongst your peers and understand that value. So when you say, I don't want to go, to them, I think there's maybe a little bit of fear in their heart saying, my child is not prioritizing God, uh, which could be true. It also could be totally not. And they're just tired and they've had a long day and they don't want to go. For me, it, it, like coming from a totally different paradigm where my parents, not that they would have preferred me not to go, but they were totally ambivalent and it was work for them. Like they had to do something extra that they didn't probably really want to do, which was to drive me on Wednesdays and drive me on Fridays and drive me on Sundays to the church. So I had to be very actively like thinking about this. But it was a shock to me to learn that like, oh, there's another side of this. It's like what, mm-hmm. what you said, where there, there's people amongst me hanging out with me who have to go. They don't have a choice. This isn't the, their, their choice. It's the faith of their parents that's pushing these kids to go into the youth. And as I got older, I thought to myself, this is going to be a really serious issue. Like, if it's not already a, a really serious issue, if you look at the history, because the Barn Institute and Pew Research did like a... Uh, they've been around for a while, especially Pew Research. But they have done like a, a cross-section of history over the past 100 years of like the retention rate of the church. And it, you know, it would be exactly what you would expect. Like in your mind, you imagine what's the era where everything changed? The late 1960s. That's when there was a great departing of the church and kids stopped coming. There was a little bit of like a resurgence in the early 70s uh, where, you know, kids started to come back. They call it the Jesus culture. Uh, But then again, by the late 70s, the departing, it just kept going up. Every year we'd lose 3 to 4% every single year until finally it went from like 7% in 1920 to 60% by 1985 or something, around 1985. And it's kind of maintained this consistent 60 to 67%, I think, was the worst. Back in 2014, I think, was the final year. Why do you think that is, that kids are, are leaving? And, I mean, over half of kids who are growing up in these churches are leaving, and they're mm-hmm. not coming back. And clearly it's not... it's 
not for lack of the parents love or wanting them to be there if they're sending them all the time. So what is it? Why is this happening? I think based on what I've uh, looked at and gone over the stats, I, the Barna Institute also releases a book each year, like a a massive thick 200 page book uh, with all of their stats. And I've gone over multiple years, uh, like cross sections of years from the eighties up until now. And, uh, from what I can see, it's a lot to do, I mean, a big portion of it, sorry, is culture. So back in 1920, most of Canada and the United States would claim to be Christian. We can debate what is the, what is the depth of, of their faith. But the difference is we had, you know, 90 to 95% of the population attending church on Sundays in 1920. Uh, if they didn't believe it, it didn't really matter because they were still there, and there was this expectation. Uh, the kids who grew up in the 1920s, I believe they're called the silent generation. They're born and grew up in the 20s and the 30s. And it was a, the culture, like people just don't understand how different the culture was at that point. Like women had just got the right to, to vote. Like that's how different the culture was. And so it was an expectation that uh, children would just do what their parents did and would would do the right thing. That's like what the culture expected of them was that, you know, you went to church regardless of your beliefs about, you know, whether you attended or not. God was real and he was this ethereal being in their lives. And so in order to get some connection with him, you'd go to church. And that was the same all the way up until really the late 1960s, early 1970s. Like, that's just what the boomers did. The boomers are the children of the silent generation. Uh, They did the same thing as their parents. But once you hit Gen X, they call, uh, I read a lot of places, Gen X is called the lost generation. And it's, I think that there's multiple reasons why they call them the lost generation. But one of them is that they, they say they don't know their place. So, like, the boomers are the children of those who went to war. And so there's this sort of, all of the parents, all of the dads of the boomers went to war. Like, almost all of them. Uh, And so they understand this militaristic, obey orders, follow what's told style, and they pass that down to their kids. But once the boomers got old, like from 1945 to 1965, which is approximately the age of the baby boomers, um, nothing bad happened. Nothing, there was no, nothing was negative in their lives. There was no war because the parents, the silent generation, their parents went to war. So they grew up the children of war. And then their parents went to war in the Franco-Prussian War of the 18... 90s or, or the 1870s. So there was wars in, in every parent's life up until the boomers. Essentially, they didn't have this strict militaristic style. And they grew up in a time of extreme prosperity. The 1950s were an unprecedented time of prosperity for America. And it was also the time when people start, in fact, people got like bored, like leisure activities became a thing. Rotary clubs, like something that we don't really understand any- anymore is that th- there was clubs outside of the church that people would just join, and they're still around, but that a massive percent of the population would be would be a part of these clubs, and they have clubhouses all around the city. In fact, if you go around St. Albert, there's still 
clubhouses from that era, from the 60s and the 70s, when just people would get together to run these clubs and do com- community events. And because people had time now, there wasn't concerns about cash flow. They were able to, you know, spend more time on themselves. They were able to spend more money on their kids. And so I think part of that is that the lost generation, Gen X, had finally had the choice. They finally had this the, the, this break in time uh, where they were growing up in the 70s and the 80s, where it was like economic prosperity was, was, was at a high, besides the oil crisis of 1973. But, you know, and their parents were well off and they lived in the suburbs and homes. And even their parents were kind of like, well, do I really believe this? I don't know. Church is kind of this thing in the back of my mind. So the Gen X kids had the, finally had the choice to, do I really want to go to church? I really want to do this. And then you time that with the sexual revolution of the late 1960s, like 68, 69, you know, empowered women in the workforce. The Fair Labor Standards Act was amended in 1968 or 67 so that women and men were paid the, the same uh, with the same job. So there's a lot of changes. People don't even know that until 1965 in Canada, women who didn't have a co-signer who was a male couldn't get a bank account. Like that's the era that we're talking is there's all these changes, uh, positive ones, good changes in many ways, some not so good, but some that were very positive and, and helpful. Uh, but what this meant was more choice, more freedom to, to do what you wanted to do. And with this began sort of this hedonistic cycle of doing what I want to do because I want to do it. And the kids of the Gen Xers, in my opinion, which is me, uh, my mom is a very early Gen X or my dad is a very late boomer. Um, like us in our mid-20s, we are like the children of the lost generation. And that sort of continued in some way where the ambivalence about faith was passed down. So as you see that pulling away from the church in, in the late 60s, early 70s and this divergence, um, because people just stopped a Tending faith became more irrelevant, as they would say. The rise of New Ageism, you know, multiculturalism. You're combining like Hinduism, you know, yoga and stuff like like all of these New Age spiritualities coming in to Canada, whereas they weren't before. Uh, people just started to naturally question their faith more, and I think that there probably always was, like in the twenties there was probably a big part of the population that attended church that didn't believe. But because on the thing, it says, what denomination are you? Baptist. Like you just check it. You don't say, what are your sub beliefs? It's just, are you a Christian or not? Yes, no. That's what they put on all of the probably censuses. Probably the majority of the country was Christian. Just 100% because, because you attended church. Yeah. So if you attended church, even if you barely believed, you checked it. But now, what's the point? Like in by the 80s and the 90s, what, why would I check something? Like I go to church tw- twice a year. I believe in an ethereal God. I'm not a Christian though. Why would I check yes? Mm-hmm. Like I, people just stop doing that. And that passed down to your kids, right? Like they say um, that like for nature versus nurture, I'm sure you've heard that argument. It's like what's the percentage that a child grows up and it's their environment that influences their beliefs and their life and then what percentage is like their physiological 
makeup. And I think that most psychologists, and if you read the Barna Institute books and stuff, this is kind of like a general belief, uh, even amongst the Barna Institute, is, is like it's probably 70 to 80% in environment. Of course, there's going to be extenuating factors for some. But most of it, the great majority of a child's life is their environment. And so they're growing up in this environment of apathy, uh, in a generation of, of apathy, and then the rise of new of new atheism, where like atheism is now cool mm-hmm. and edgy, whereas like it's like a counterculture thing, right? You know, kids want to rebel against their parents who are like waffling Christians, or like you know they they check the Christian box but they attend twice a year, like to to rebel against that. What's the opposite of that? Well, it's not belief. If my parents believe, what's the opposite? No belief. So new age atheist, like new atheism is what they call it, is this thing where it's to hate God and despise Christianity. And that's cool. Like even now that it's changing a bit, but now, like when I was growing up, new atheism was like a big thing. Like mm. to not believe in God was was edgy and cool and neat. And like, that's what, if you were cool, you were an atheist nerds were Christians, like the losers were Christians <laughs> because they were like conforming to society, even though technically that's not true at all based on stats. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but that's what the general belief was. And I think that all of those things that I talked about contributed to where we are today with this this cycle that we have of kids leaving the church, culture being extremely attractional, parents who had massive options in their lives and freedom to make choices and didn't really have a faith and were just attending because their parents told them to, finally just leaving and their kids seeing that and they're like, well, what's the point of this? Why would I even go? Mm. I think that's a huge contributing factors. So what can we do? All these kids are leaving. The church is shrinking, if not... Yeah heading towards a lot a lot of them dying right because there's no young people really to to age up into leadership and Mm -hmm. community and things like that there's there's much less yeah so what can what do we do um here's the thing there's no there's no perfect answer and that's the hard part is that we would really love as people to just have a a clean cut you know piece of paper that just says this is the answer to solve the problem um it's 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 a bunch of issues rolled into one i think that if we look at our own church actually we can kind of see um what standard christian practice is and this is amongst every church and i've i've asked other churches and they have the same thing I, for Sturgeon Valley, I call it the Thetis Island effect. And it's that once you reach the age of 18, in order, you haven't, you accept God as your savior, kind of, and you know he's there, but you've never really had an experience with him. And your parents are like afraid that they'll lose you to the world. So they send you to Bible college or they heavily encourage you to Bible college or you see, as you were growing up, you saw your friends go to, to Bible college. So you think, this is the natural mm-hmm. progression of my life. And for people who don't know, Thetis Island is a particular <coughs> Bible college that a lot of 
a lot of our friends have yes. gone to. Yeah. So, sorry. Yes, no, that's that. that's correct. Yeah, I just named it that. But the reality is, this is the same in every church. Is that a lot of Christian youth will go through the motions during their youth group years, and have some vague faith, and then they go to Cape and Ray, or they go to YWAM, someplace, and they catalyze their faith and they encounter God truly on these events, and he gets a hold of their heart, and they come back changed. Uh, but that, to me, and not that that's bad, I think that's good. I think that's a that's a great thing, is that if I encourage people who are 18, who are waffling on their faith, to, if they really want to know if God is real, to definitely take it seriously, take six months, go to a Bible college, and get out of your environment. Don't stay in the same environment that you've been in your whole life, because then you really won't know. If you stick in the same church that, you, that you've been in since you came out of your mother's womb, it's hard to get any other viewpoint. So I'm not, I, I, I want to be clear to everybody out there, I'm not pooping on this. I think it's a, a great thing. But what it says to me is like, I think we need to be more prepared to equip our children with the uh, questions and answers that are really hard and that we as a church avoid. And I think that these questions that we uh, we avoid are the ones that most need to be talked about. Um, there are there's there's a few questions in particular that the Barna Institute and Pew research went over uh, that were really important. And one of them is evolution. And then the other one is sexuality. So those are sort of, I said one question, but there's two. And those are the two things that I think as Christians, we avoid heavily Mm. because we don't know, either we don't know what we believe on them and we don't really want to talk about it. Or we believe that if we begin to talk about it, somehow God will be proven false which is a scary place to be if your faith relies on the fact that you don't discuss something and you don't look into something and you're afraid to look into it. Uh, that's a pretty scary place to be. I have to say, there was times in, in, in my faith walk where definitely I was afraid to look into things uh, because I didn't want to be proven wrong. Now I think that I, I look at my, my viewpoint is not that at, at all. My viewpoint is that there are things that we absolutely need to be talking about with our kids. Two of them, obviously, science, because science is, according to new atheism, if you want to become an atheist, just look into science, and science will prove that God doesn't exist. Somehow, science goes into to metaphysics and just proves metaphysics false. Uh, not true at all. I don't, like, that's totally false. But that's a, a sincerely held belief for a long time, and that even some Christian parents will encourage their children not to look into that and not to go into the STEM fields. Like, don't go into science. Don't become a chemist. Don't take chem, bio. Like, don't do that stuff mm. because it, it, you know, it, it could be rocking to your faith because they, they teach lies in these f- fields. And sexuality, too. Kids, you know, the, the reality is that, um, you know, kids 9 and 10 now are seeing pornography like that's just a fact is that in the public school system in the catholic school system doesn't matter where you are most kids will encounter pornography by the time they're 10 uh some as as early as eight uh but by the time you're 11 or 12 if you haven't talked to your kids about pornography and sexuality you've lost like they're already they already know 
They've already learned it from school. They've heard it from their friends. And even if you ask them as a parent, hey, do you know about sex? They'll feel awkward about it. And they might say, no, uh, what's that? Right? Because, you know, you're 12 years old. You don't really want to have this conversation (laughs) with your parents. Uh, But the chances are that you've already lost that battle and that society is going to be the one that teaches them about those things. So whose responsibility is it? Is it the church in general who should be talking about these things to kids leaving the church? Like who's who's responsible for these conversations? I think that it's definitely the parents. Like it's it's our duty as as parents. Going briefly back to that study, that moment that I had that conversation with Justin. Um this was a study done in 2014. So it is 6 years old now. But, or sorry, eight years old now. Well, wow. Uh, but it's guaranteed to still be applicable. And the, the study showed it was a, a, a statistics uh, experiment on which, what did the parents of the kids who stayed do differently than the kids who left? And there was some things that were the exact same in both categories. But it's the differences that really sets them apart and really makes me be like, wow, this is our job as parents, not Pastor Tom's job. It's really our job. Number one is that in both homes, the people who leave and the people who stay, prayer at dinner time and around bedtime existed. In most cases, sure, there's going to be cases where there isn't. But in most cases, Prayers are around bedtime and around the supper table have almost no effect on the faith of your kid. So that's one thing. Second thing is reading the Bible at bedtime to your kids. Almost no effect on leaving and staying. So let me just, oh, and uh, praying for your kids. Both teams prayed for their kids. Uh, there there might have been a few on the stayed side who went like way harder uh, but there's a, surely a few on the who didn't stay aside who prayed just as hard and they didn't stay. So those three things were shocking to me that they're the exact same. Those have almost no effect. But where it, it but where there was a big difference was in th- the same spots but outpouring differently. So in the homes of where the children who stayed. The parents read their Bible on their own, by themselves, in front of their kids. So the question was, did you see your parents reading the word Mm. for themselves? And the answer amongst those who stayed almost all the time was yes. I did see my parents reading their Bible by themselves on their own time for themselves. Second question, oh yeah, sorry. And then on the other side, they said no. On the kids who left, the general majority of them said, "No, my parents did not. Um, my parents did not read their Bible in mm-hmm. front, like for themselves." Second question was, "If uh, excuse me, if I paraphrase a bit, but it was something along the lines of, do your parents talk about the Word of God? And then, like, to what degree do they talk about it? All the time, a little bit, not." And the question was asked to both sides and both sides gave totally different answers. The 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 children who who stayed, God was talked about often. He was wound into many conversations, uh, more than just the dinner table, more than just at nighttime. For these kids who left, 
God was only talked about really ethereally, like in the the distance. Uh, he was only talked about when they were praying at bedtime and at supper t- table time. That's it. So th- th- those are two huge things that we need to take encouragement as. Um, as current parents, as future parents perhaps, those are things that you need to watch, is you need to be reading your word by yourself, for yourself, which I, th- I think is just a great practice. As you and I have been learning in church renewal, that's just a great practice to get into is just being in the Word for your own walk. Talking about God, though, huge. Something that um, I think we probably undervalue is weaving God into everything. My wife says that her parents, she has six siblings, including herself, all of them are firm believers. And she said one of the main things that her parents did was weave God into everything. Everything that they did, everything that they said, somehow they said, oh yes, and that's how God did blah, blah, blah. He was just a part of every day in everything that they walked into. God was there. So those are two huge things. One of the one of the next things is prayer. So it's like, how do your parents pray? Um, do you see your parents praying by themselves for those parents, for, for those children, sorry, who stayed in the church? They did. They saw their parents praying and they wanted to model it, so they prayed. So it's, do you pray? Uh, on this side, the answer was yes. And not just around supper time, not just around bedtime. Prayers were in the middle of, of the day, at current needs, when there was a crisis, constant prayer, big time in the, in, in the homes of those who stayed, in the homes of those who left. There was prayers around supper, and there was prayers around bedtime, but there was no prayers in the open. So the parents didn't pray, if ever, in front of their children for themselves. Um, so you can see what, what I'm saying, how it can look on the outside quickly at a glance, like there's nothing that you could do. Mm-hmm. But in the intricate small things for each of these uh, items, there, there is stuff that you can do. It's very practical too. Like yes. It's, it's encouraging to hear it's not just this like, oh, you just have to pray harder and, and just, hope. Just, like, just, please, Jesus. Like it's a very practical, like Ooh. you can see the difference, yeah. which is encouraging, I think. Yes, it, it is encouraging. Um, the other thing too is that I know that this is a really sensitive topic because we have many fellow b- believers amongst us at Sturgeon um, and all around the world who say, well, I did these things and... Three out of their four kids don't believe. Um, There's definitely an element of uh, social reality too. So you can do all of these things and it's not guaranteeing that your child is going to come out a believer. So, um, you know, they they are practical things, which is Mm -hmm. a great, it's not just some cute word that's like, oh, you know, just, uh, we just need to be more Christian and pray more and then people will come to faith. Um, no, there is practical things that we can do as believers. But Essentially, it's, it's not like the three steps to keeping your kids in Christ. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not it's gonna not work gonna like that. that. But you know what it is? It's manifesting your faith. Yeah. That's the reality. The difference between the two groups, those who left and those who stayed, to me, in the studies in that study and the studies following, the biggest difference is the manifestation of the faith of the parents. Every day, 
And that's how how important it is. I wrote here on my little notes page, actively bringing God into the home, not just at mealtimes and nighttime. And you know what it is? It's hard. As a parent of three kids, it's hard. It's very easy to bring God into your life at mealtimes and at bedtime. It's very easy because those are the moments where it's slow. Mm -hmm. So when you get around a supper table, um, and there's a bunch of statistics about that too, by the way, about the importance of eating together as a family. That's that's just like psychologically. But you gather around the supper table, it's slow because people have to sit and eat. So you're like, oh, this is convenient. I'm going to pray. Thank you, Jesus. Like it's just a convenient time. Bedtime, very convenient time. You know what's an inconvenient time? 2 p.m. in the middle of the day when everything's crazy and the kids are outside in the back screaming and they're pummeling each other. <laughs> that's not a convenient time. But that's the time where it will affect them the, the most. They see the Bible. Like, I think I heard you saying that you often saw the Bible around yeah, in I your think home. That was one of the most impactful things for me, especially with my dad. Like, my dad and I hmm. were close, but I was homeschooled, so I talked with my mom a lot more. So we got to talk about God a lot together. Yeah. With my dad, we didn't get to talk about those things as often. We mm -hmm. still did, but not as much. But I would see his Bible out every day. And it wasn't like he just left it there and hadn't actually read it. Like it would be a different passage. And like his Bible was like completely marked up. Mm -hmm. Like he's an underliner. So he'd have sticky tags and it's underlined. And he had this leather Bible that was well-worn. And so we didn't even always talk about what he was reading that day but i knew that before he'd gone to work he'd been up at the crack of dawn reading his bible and praying and just knowing like oh my dad actually believes this mm -hmm. like this is like a serious thing for him yeah and i really respect my father yeah so that was very impactful for me to see oh he's actually doing these things that you know we hear we're supposed to do and totally. of course we prayed together at bedtimes sure. and at mealtimes and stuff, but yeah. just seeing them live their faith, not as just a parenting technique, right? It wasn't yeah. like, oh, we're Christians, so this is what we do. It was, oh, like he's he's walking with the Lord every day. Yeah. And that was very, like I look back, at the time I didn't think anything of it, but I look back and that was very profound for me hmm. to to see my parents like take this seriously. I think you're seeing the fruit, right? Like that's the whole thing is that you're not just breeding, but it's the manifestation of that fruit outwardly. And you, you see that, like, I don't even know if the kids who left would even understand the difference mm. between what the people who stayed and the people who left, like that you, you wouldn't see it, see it just by going to their house. Yeah. Like you wouldn't see that in their, in their lives. But as you said, it's the small things. It's seeing your dad's Bible out. It's knowing that he prayed. It's all these like subconscious things that get into the head of the child. It's, wow, my, my dad, my mom, they really believe this. Mm -hmm. It's not just some passing thing that they believe because their parents do. And it's not just a club. It's not like we're part right. of the club of Christianity. Yeah. So like soccer practice, we have to do our Bible study as a family yeah, or we whatever. We have to do like, our thing. Yeah, it's... it's more intertwined than that yeah. in the narrative of, of growing up in a household like that. Yeah. I think that 
as I, as, as you said, it's nice to know that, that there's practical things. Um, I think praying for your kids too is also, um, really important. Even before you have children or before you're married, how many times have I prayed for Macy's future spouse, Lorraine's future spouse, Jack's future spouse, their children that they may or may not have. But we under, like, the Lord is a God who wants to hear our prayers. We undervalue the importance of praying too. Um, And I think that if you look at a list of things, the Barnett Institute wrote, like, a list of the most prayed for things uh, that most people prayed for. Obviously, mealtime, you know, the meal itself is, like, number one. Food is one of the most prayed for things because it's just around. And that we would have a good day. Two things that we pray for, a good sleep, you know, three. Uh, but not very high on the list of things that we pray for is our children's faith mm. is like actually not, it's probably, I think it's number, I think it's seven or eight, five years in, in a row. And to me, I'm like, this should be number one. Mm. Like the first thing we should pray for is a vibrancy of faith for our children. Not just faith, not just like I'm getting in the door and the door closes right behind me kind of faith, but like a vibrancy of faith, a growing faith where they, I internalize the truth of the gospel and then they take it out to the world and they display it in their actions Mm. in the ways that the the parents of the kids who stayed do, where they're manifesting that faith like, like your dad. There's another study too. I think that as, as men, see, this is going to be very unpopular um, amongst uh, the culture of the world, but the men have a very big role to play in this. There was a study in between 20, between 2008, sorry, and 2010 done in Sweden. And I, I learned this in school. So this was uh, five or six years ago, but there was an important study done in, in Sweden, which is by and large, mostly agnostic and atheist. Christianity make up a small percentage of people in, in Sweden comparatively to like um, America. Uh, and there was a study done, and the percentage was in the study based on children who stayed in, you know, in the faith after the youth group age. What are the percentages? And then they even broke it down. I was quite shocked on like marital status of the parents, and mm-hmm. then based like extrapolated that too. So in two parent homes where both parents were believers, there was a forty. chance that the child would come to faith and stay in the faith. So Christian home with two parents, below 50% chance of of this child staying statistically. Um, So don't, don't start saying like, oh, but it's only a 45% chance my kid's going to know God. Like if you live that way, it's not going (laughs) to be good, but that's just what this, the stats show. And then they broke it down into single parent homes. In the single parent homes where the mother was the, the, where there was a mom who was a believer, it was 8%. There was an 8% chance that the child would internalize the faith and stay, which is a shocking decline from two, two parent homes. From 45 to 8, that's huge. And then uh, in the, in where, where the dad was the believer, there's a 63% chance mm. that the person that the children would come to faith. And this is not poo-pooing on women by any stretch. 
uh, so important is their role in the home. But it shows you the importance of a father's role in leading the in leading his household to spiritual maturity. Is that in single pa- in single family homes? And this could have changed. So you know the study is ten years old now. But I would believe that it, uh, society has continued on the trend that it was then and gotten we'll say more than that time. This is probably even more a reality. Seeing your dad internalize his faith is huge. Very important that fathers manifest their faith. Uh, and it didn't matter, by the way, because they broke it down by gender. Didn't, made no change. The girls and the guys had the same outcome, almost like to the near percentage point, whether it was a guy or a girl child. Um, doesn't make any change. What the But the biggest difference was... Um, I believe in single family homes, the faith of the parent has to be vibrant. And so when you have two fam, two parent homes, the chance of there being like a complacency is greater. Whereas in, in, in single parent homes, the complacency chance is less. But somehow children, I guess, based on the stats, just see their dad leading and they and they just internalize that more, and they mm-hmm. see the manifestation of the father's faith um, as like very key and very important for their own own walk. I think it's very hard to dismiss your father. You know, if hmm. your if your dad is serious about something, not that it's easy to dismiss <laughs> your mother. I could just bye, mom. No, no. But like, I don't know. It's just a different role, hmm. right? Yeah. So if your dad is like very serious about something, yeah. It as a child is very difficult to not take it mm. seriously in, in, in anything. Like you look at families who the dad is into sports, mm. right? Like the kids most of the time are into sports. Are into sports. They take that seriously. They they kind of do that together, and you know, which yeah. is yeah, very interesting. Yeah, and I don't think I, I again hear me. I'm not. Like, I think women are incredible, and I think their faith walks are vibrant and extremely important. Uh, And again, in that study, it goes beyond just single-parent homes. It actually goes into homes with there's two parents, but one parent is a believer and one parent is not. Mm -hmm. And you see the same trend, where homes where the father is not a believer and the mother is a believer, but it's a two-family home, the children are, like, less inclined again, and the single fam- sorry two parent homes where the father is a believer and the mother is not mm-hmm. same thing that there's a greater chance and i think that what you said has did definitely credence it's hard to ignore your father especially a present father because you can be absentee and that's you know a very big problem but if you're present in your kids lives like they look up to that leadership and so um, and I don't take that lightly. That's the other thing is that is a huge responsibility. Um, and I think that that's why you need to be a team with husband and wife. You can't shoulder that responsibility. You can't shoulder, I can't shoulder the responsibility of three children becoming believers. That's too much to bear. I can't even fathom that. I shoulder that responsibility with Candace mm. every day. And that's an everyday challenge. Uh, is shouldering that responsibility, knowing you you know that in staff meeting, my my number one prayer, right, is the, for the salvation and sanctification walk of my 
Yeah, we have a little list when we do staff prayer, and Riley's is just like permanently on there. Like they just wrote it in, they just leave it there (laughs) for his kids. Um, And I think that like it's a reminder too. So the funny thing is like, oh yeah, ha ha, you know, it's it it's cute because you know praying for your kids is important, but it's a reminder. When I read that, I'm like, oh, I have to pray for my kids. Yeah. When when I see them on my phone as my background, I'm like, oh, I have to pray for my kids. It's easy to forget. You get busy doing yard work. You get busy playing your guitar, playing, you know, music, singing in your day. You fill up your day with things. And it's easy to get distracted and not see the importance of, you know, as mm-hmm. I said, that, that 2 p.m. time where everything is going crazy and the kids are screaming at each other and something comes up and you're like, we need to pray for this. And I think that learning to pray in crisis has been very helpful. I'll call the girls over and we'll get down on our knees and we'll hold hands and we'll all pray as a family. Um, and it might not be about a huge crisis thing, but should, I hope that they would see that it's like, wow, dad, like he prays about the hard things and the, and the, the easy things, mm-hmm. you know, praying about a meal, easy. Praying for your father-in-law who's about to, to pass away because of an an illness, that's hard. That's Those are hard prayers to have, hard moments to have that you need to bring your children into so that they see that you have faith that God can move mountains and do mm. miracles and stuff. It's, it's, it's those practical things, which we talked about, but it's the, it's the simple things too. They're, they're not hard to do realistically they're hard to do logistically yeah. and to circle back around you said that the shouldering of that responsibility can be weighty very um and i mean i don't have kids so that's not something i i think very deeply about very mm-hmm. often yeah but you know the bible tells us to raise our children in the lord and yeah. to teach them the ways yeah and yet i think so encouraging especially to parents mm-hmm. of young children is that you're not doing it alone you're one not. you have your spouse yeah but you also have the holy spirit yeah who is leading and guiding through that yeah and so if people are listening to this and they're like oh my gosh <laughs> that just freaks it's me out it like freaks me out and i don't even have kids um you know just be encouraged that you're not alone that this isn't this isn't like this is all on you and no. you know we're given I think our roles that God ordains for us Mm -hmm. and then the grace of God just covers a lot of the rest of that or all of the rest of that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the other thing I mentioned earlier is talking about the hard questions and those hard questions, um, they're going to come up in the child's life. Candace says this to me all the time. It's like, Who's going to teach your kid about these things? You or the world? And you have to make that choice. Are you going to allow the world to teach your children about sex? Are you going to allow your the world to teach your children about these the things? Or are you going to teach them? Are you going to a- a- allow the world to teach your children about prayer and about, you know, what God looks like and what his love looks like? Or are you going to do it? It's, it's a heavy responsibility, but the lucky thing, as you said, Kaylin, is that we have God. He covers a lot of it with his grace and his mercy to us. Thank you. And uh, 
the the other thing is that it's nice that even though as you get older the, the days go by faster and f- f- faster the nice thing is that it is still day by day every day there's a new dawn thus far until he comes again but every day there's a new dawn and that's a new opportunity and you have 24 hours to manifest your faith to your kids and that's a lot of time as the minutes tick away that's a lot of time that you have opportunities so if you're older and your kids are, you know, in high school now and you feel like, oh, I've missed, you haven't. There's no missed opportunity. You can seize every moment to manifest your faith and your kids will 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 see it. To your grandchildren even, to, to those who currently have grandchildren and great-grandchildren, it's not a lost chance. It, it's not, oh no, well, I screwed up now. I screwed up my kids. I had 18 years and I blew it and it's all downhill f- from here. No, by, by no means is that true. There's always things that you can do mm. uh, to influence, to have conversations with uh, that, will make, that will make a difference. If, if you grew up or if you raised your kids in this one category where you only prayed at bedtime and, and at meal time and you didn't read your word and you didn't know the stuff as a grandparent you can totally change that every time your kids your and your grandkids walk in read the word be reading the word talk with your kids about what you've learned talk with your grandchildren about what you've done mm-hmm. it's not too late that's the one thing that, that i fear is that some people who have children who have gone away from the faith or who aren't with the faith anymore and their children aren't with the faith anymore, they might think, I've lost it, I blew it, the generations are over, it ends with me. No. There's always things, these practical things that you can do that definitely will actually improve your your own faith in God by doing these things. You'll you'll hear more from him. You'll You'll learn more about him by doing these things. And then by extension, you'll want more for your children and you'll want to talk about him more. It's like a, it's a cycle. It's like this self-feeding cycle where the more you read the word, the more you want to talk about God, the more you talk about God to your kids, the more they want to know what you're learning, the more you read. Mm. And it's, or the more you pray, it's the same thing. The more you pray, the more they want to know what you're praying about, why you're praying about it. You talk more about it, you pray more. It's, it's these feeding cycles, but it takes one thing in that cycle to, to stop to stop the cycle mm-hmm. and it's right at the top it's it, it's just doing it yeah. if i don't do <laughs> it, do it. <laughs> if i don't do that thing it's not going to start that cycle yeah so so the very last thing i wanted to touch on sure. uh, before we're done is for the wider church for us as a community yeah and people like me who don't have kids or i don't know people who whose kids are grown and moved away and how do we support parents especially Hmm. in raising their kids in this way like what can we do to to help because i don't have kids but i still care Mm -hmm. about kids growing in their faith and and coming up in the church so definitely so what do people like me do um you know what that's a great question and one that you're more uniquely uh in a position to walk out I don't know exactly, I'll, I'll be frank, I don't know exactly the things to to do as people who aren't parents or who are, you know, older and their kids aren't in the church or they're not there anymore. But what I know is that you mentioned yesterday when we stand up for the dedications, what does that mean? 
you know, what does it mean to stand up and, and affirm the dedication of a child to, to the Lord? Can you just explain? Sure, yeah. someone's not from yeah. our church. Sure, what, so what is, what are you child dedication. About? Yeah, it's in the Baptist circles. Uh, what it means is that you are bringing your child to the front of the church. The pastor uh, prays about the child and, and receives a verse from the Lord and prays that over the child. And essentially what it means by extension, is that we are raising as parents, we are committing this child to the Lord. We want him like Samuel was committed to to the Lord. We want him them to become uh, a believer. And then by extension, though, the whole church stands up and affirms that they will walk with the parents in raising the children. And I think that all of the things that I talked about being... In the home, I think those are the things that we need to do in the church. It's not the responsibility of, of Pastor Tom to create believers. It's not like, Pastor Tom, uh, we're here and you're the pastor, so you just teach my kid and my kid will come to faith and like, that's your job. And, or, you know, well, we're paying you, so, you know, I'm paying you to lead my kid to Christ. Like, no, uh, it's almost like we come here to be equipped to raise our kids. And we come here to be equipped to help other children. Because I'm not, as a parent here, I'm also not raising my own kids too. I'm helping others in the church raise their kids. And there's practical aspects of that in prayer, in praying for these kids, in reading your Bible in front of these other kids, in having the hard conversations with these kids. One of the biggest things that I think in counseling that you learn because uh, I took a few counseling courses uh, in my degree, is creating a safe environment for children to feel like they can talk with you is really important because they're never going to share the hard things in their life with you if they feel like you're going to judge them. Uh, even if it's a small thing, you need to create that safe environment. So being a safe environment for the youth in our church, huge. Like if you can be a safe environment, even if their own environment isn't safe, Look at some of the children in our church. Maybe their parents are not a safe environment for them in their mind. But maybe you are. Maybe something you've said to them has helped them, you know, with their faith. And, and you've spoken to them about God. And you've prayed with them. And when they're sharing something hard, you're like, can I pray with you about that? That's a big thing. People are blown away. I don't know why this is a thing in the church, but how many times I've seen people be blown away when they're talking about something really hard and I say to them, can I pray for you? And they're like, thank you. And I'm like, no, like right now. And they're like, oh, you can do that? <laughs> like they're, it's almost like they're blown away that you're like, oh, yes. And they're, and they're so grateful and thankful. That's huge. Kids internalize big time if a leader in their life is like, first of all, wanting to hear out their problems and they're willing to share them, that's big. Take note. But then if you turn to them and say, wow, that is so hard. Can I pray with you about that? That's a shock to a young person who feels isolated or, or alone or depressed or upset about something in their life, which as an adult, you might think that is the most trivial thing I've ever heard in my life. But it doesn't matter because it's not trivial to them. It matters really deeply. And it's important that you don't shut down whatever it is, no matter if it's the most lighthearted thing or an extremely hard thing. Affirming that they're telling you that thing, huge. 
that's part of being the village that we talk about, like the village that raises a child, the church that raises a child. Mm-hmm. Affirming that you hear them, that they have value when they talk to you, and then praying over them, you'll never forget that. I, I have never forgotten the times when people in my own adult life have said, can I pray for you? And I'm like, thanks. And they're like, no, like right now. <laughs> I was like, whoa, that's weird. And in the few times, I'm trying to do it more and more, in the few times where I've just stepped out awkwardly and I'm like, I'm just going to pray for you now. Can I pray for you? And they're like, yes, thank you. It, it is a deeply important thing. Those are just some of the practical ideas I would have. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, I hope that great. helps. Yeah, that does. No, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, yeah. I mean, I have two little nieces and I think that's just... It's cool to see, one, how my sister is raising them, but then the privilege of being part of a child's life yeah. in any kind of area and just being very aware of the, the impact that we have. Some of the most impactful people in my life outside of my parents, they weren't my peers. Mm. They were like my friend's parents, mm. you know, who would speak into my life. Yep. And yeah, so... I, it. Makes sense what you're saying. It all makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it's that subconscious. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, I think children, like the biggest difference between being 15 and being 25 is the realization. When you're 25, you really do realize how much in your life, like how many things when you're growing up, like around you affected you. Mm-hmm. When you're 15, you don't realize that. You don't. It's not because of anything bad. It's just like I feel like it's a part of the development of your brain is foresight becomes way stronger when your brain is fully developed when it rather than when it's in full mm. development. The difference between thir- 25 and 35 is probably negligible in that like sense where you still see the foresight. But when you're 15, it is really hard to to understand. Like you understand it, but it's hard to... Uh, grasp yeah. the importance of the things that are subconsciously you're taking in. When you're 25, you realize when somebody says something Im- impactful, oh, that you're like, was... oh, that's big. Yeah. Like, that's a big thing. <laughs> when you're 15, you're like, okay, sure, ma, blah, 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 like whatever. And then when you're 25, you're like, remember that time mom said that thing? And you're like, like yeah. So <laughs> don't undercut, don't undercut the things that you will teach your nieces. Like, There'll be things that you say to them and they're like, whatever, Auntie Kaylin, blah, 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 (laughs) when they're like 14. But then when they're 25, they'll be like, oh, that thing. Oh, that Mm. thing. I do that. I still do that. I'm like, oh, remember that time? And I completely ignored it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was important. Boom. (laughs) Right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, do you have any closing thoughts for us? No. um, I mean, I think that my closing thought is don't be disheartened uh, if you have felt like you've walked uh, the wrong way or you haven't, you, you know, you stood up for, for, you stood up for the affirmation of these kids uh, in the church and then you haven't done anything. Like, don't be disheartened because until Christ comes, it's never too, it's never too late. Mm. It's never too late for us to uh, walk out our faith and manifest our faith. I think that's the big lesson from from pining over Barna Institute books and Pew Research books and research-based uh, articles on acceptance of faith. What does it all show? What it shows is that the manifestation of your faith is crucial to the lives of your children, the lives of other children, 
and most certainly your own faith walk. Mm. Living out what you believe, I mean, that's the rankest hypocrisy amongst unbelievers that they see, is they look at believers and they say, look how they live their lives. They're no different than us. If we're no different than the local atheist, if we don't live any differently, what f- James 3, right? Faith without works is, is dead. If we are literally no different, then our faith might as well be non-existent mm. because it doesn't produce anything. So that's what, that's what my encouragement is to everybody. Don't think it's too late. It is so important to, to manifest your faith. Read your Bible. Try these practical things in your own life as a parent. Try these practical things in your own life as a non-parent to your family members and to those people who are, are committing their children. We've had many dedications in this church over the past year and a half. These are the opportunities that we're going to have. Mm-hmm. As these kids come up through children's ministry and into the youth, these are going to be the times. Forging good relationships, having important conversations. That's what we need to do. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you, Riley. Thanks for coming in and sharing your passion for parenthood. Oh, well, <laughs> it's near and dear to my heart. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> your three little ones at home. Well, thank you, Kaylin, for was great. having me. Oh, it yeah. was great. Yeah. Yeah, we'll have to do it again sometime. Absolutely. All right. Thank you, Riley. No problem. From the Valley is a Sturgeon Valley Baptist Church production. Be sure to like, subscribe, and follow our podcast so you don't miss any episodes. And if you like what you hear, you can find information about joining us every Sunday at 10 a.m. And that can be found at www.svbc.ab.ca. Thanks for listening.